Well, good morning, Grace Covenant Church. Happy Easter. Here's a greeting that goes back a few years. He is risen, and then you say he is risen indeed. He is risen, risen indeed. That greeting goes back to the beginning of the Christian faith. It is a declarative statement. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It is a definitive statement. It defines every man, woman, and child. It defines life. It defines death. It defines all of history. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All things point to that in the human timeline. Men, women, and child be celebrating all over the world this Easter. In the history of Christendom, they have met in catacombs and in caves and cathedrals. But this year, we meet in homes all over the world. And this is a very special year, 2020. We're into month four, and it has been a year of uncertainty and fear. It's been a year where we're having to stop and look at the frailty of, of, of humanity, of mankind. And sometimes that frailty finds itself in a reflection of our own personal frailty. Is this going to happen to me? Am I next? And in, in that frailty, we find ourselves living in fear and uncertainty. And Resurrection Sunday, it shows up and says, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in, in uncertainty. That's the, one of the, certainly the points of the resurrection story is to free us from the slavery of fear and the slavery of uncertainty. Here's the problem, fundamentally, whether it comes to us from world religions or our own intuitive soul way of thinking, and I would say that thinking is bent and broken. Here, here's, here's why we feel anxious during these times and are, and are afraid. Most all world religions and the way we think about our soul's health is uh, analogous to uh, accounting, a, a merit and demerit system, just fundamental accounting. It's a ledger book. And in, in, in ledger books, there, there is basic accounting goes like this. If you have an asset, then it counts as, uh, it's written in, in black. If you own that, that's an asset, that's black. If you have a liability, that means you're indebted. That's written in red ink, okay? And if, if, if a person is living with more assets than liabilities, you say, that, that person's living in black, and if someone is living with debt, more debt than, than assets, you say, oh man, that, that man's living in the red, living in the red. Well, what, that's accounting. What people do is they, they attach that same ledger system to the very health and destiny and the fate of their souls. It's a, it's a moral ledger book. It's, it's, and so when we, when we do good, that's an asset. And when we fail to do the right thing or when we do the wrong thing or when we reject goodness, when we ignore God, those are liabilities. Those are red ink sorts of things. That's our indebtedness to God. And the way the system works, if you're if your assets, your black ink good works are more than your you know, red ink bad works, you know, you're doing good. You're a good person. And then at the end of life, may you, hopefully you have more assets than liabilities. You're living in the black and you're dying in the black ink. And then you get whatever that religion or whatever your heart thinks it ought to get, like heaven or nirvana or 
maybe you can be, I don't know, uh, recycled as uh, like a really rich lady's cat, right? You know, uh, something like that. That's whatever it's promising. That's, that's how the ledger system works. And the, the point is this model of, of soul accounting, it's all about doing and it's all up to you. And that, that system enslaves the soul to fear. It is, it is insidious. It is burdensome. If, if the ledger system is applied accurately, right, and truthfully, it's life-consuming because we are perpetually make, keeping account for all of our, our actions, our thoughts, and our very motives. And even, <laughs> what I, even in actions, we, we're so broken that, that when we're told to do something by an authority, whether it's God or, or a parent, or not to do something by God or an authority, we, we're like, no, I don't want to do that. Look, look, maybe it's just me, but, you know, when, when the people in charge said, don't touch your face, I don't think I touched my face that much. And now since that's been rolled out, I've touched my face more than I ever have. And you know why? Because someone said I can't. (laughs) So on the moral part of this, at least my experience has not been good. But even if we did do the right actions and, and we were doing okay with that, it's still also about motive. Right? Whether it's Aristotle or Shakespeare, we all know, you know, the motive makes it so. And so if we're keeping a true accounting of things, we have to include not just our actions or our thoughts, but also our motives. And I find it's almost impossible to change motives. Because if you, if you did the right thing for the wrong reason, then you have black ink getting spilled with a bunch of red ink. And, and the motives like, like envy and pride or revenge, they show up or pity or whatever it might be. They just show up in the midst of doing maybe even the right thing. And pride, mm. in the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, pride is the greatest of all sins because the God of the Bible is the only God that's ever been written about that's humble. And it's the humility of God that says pride is the worst of all sins. That's some very deep red ink on our moral ledger. And so just in summary, even when we do good things, we can do it for the wrong reason. And and it counts as a liability against us. And so what, what, what do we do with all of that red ink? If that weren't bad enough, if you study the saints, you'll find that the closer a person is to knowing the Lord and the closer a person is to becoming a saint, right? You find in their writings that they become super sensitive to what they think and what motivates them. And they, and they don't like it. They, they, in other words, the more holy you become, the more you realize how sinful you are. And so you can even look at the uh, biographies, no, 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 the autobiographies of heavyweights like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And when they write about their soul's health, they say they were drowning in red ink. They were not good and healthy souls. So if they can't do it, I'm not sure how you and I can do this ledger system. And that's why it says in the Psalms, it says, Lord, if you kept 
records of our sins, who could stand? Who could stand? And listen, the ledger system isn't just evil in the context of how we live. It's also even worse in how we die under the ledger system. Because in, in, in our death, when we're, it, it's, it, it brings this, the fear of uncertainty to eternal destiny issues. And, and, we, and we, we have to wonder, we're laying on our deathbed and we have to wonder, can I be certain? Did I do enough? Do my assets, are they greater than my liabilities? Even when I include my thoughts and motives? You, I mean, can you be sure? You can't be sure. You could never be sure going all the way to the end. And, and Jesus doesn't help much. In his teachings on the ledger system, he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds these religious leaders who have given their entire lives to living holy lives, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, there's no place in, in, in for the kingdom of God. So there's slavery in, in living under the ledger system and there is fear dying in the ledger system. How good is good enough? Are you there? How are you gonna, when are you gonna find out? When you, get, when you get to judgment day, did you make it? I don't know, we'll see. And can I ask you, like, let's go deeper on this whole ledger system. What kind of God sets up a ledger system for soul health and soul destiny? What kind of God puts us in a way that says, okay, in your life, uh, your, li your whole life is a performance review. And here's how we're going to do it. Two rules. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay. Two, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. That's, those are some pretty high standards to live by in the ledger system. And then on, on, in, then on death, final judgment. How'd you do? Was it enough? Don't know? Well, you'll find out in eternity and have to live with consequences of that. We'll see. What kind of supreme being sets up a ledger system where it's all but designed to fail and then causes you to live your life in fear and uncertainty? I'll tell you, that's not a loving God. That's not a loving God. And the resurrection says this and the resurrection proves this, that Jesus personally came here to get it to dissolve and throw away any hopes that anyone would have in the ledger system. He, he destroys this method of keeping score. It wasn't from him, but he wants, them, he wants everybody to give up on it so that we can live with certainty in our relationship with God in our lives and know for certain our eternal fate. And this is the way he does it. He, he, he frees us from the debt uh, that our sins have, and he gives us certainty of our destiny. When you study the teachings of Jesus Christ, let me show you what, it, what makes Christianity different. It's not as though Jesus came here, like other religious leaders, maybe to give us uh, an exemplary life and to teach us about the ways of God. He did that, but that other people could do that and have done that. Jesus came for a particular thing that only he could do, and that was this, that for 2,000 years of promises and prophecies that led to his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection were pointing to this promise. And the promise was a freedom to live 
and a freedom to die. It's the death of the, of the debt system, of the ledger system. He takes on our debt. That's what he does. And only he could do that. If you look in the Bible, if you look at the teachings about his death and resurrection, I want you to see in these passages how much of the ledger system vocabulary is being used so that we can see that he has done away with that. In Colossians, it says, when you were dead in your sins, drowning in red ink, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. And how did he do that? having canceled out the certificate of debt. There is it is. There's that certificate of debt, all red ink. And he stood, that certificate of debt, it stood against us and it condemned us. And Jesus had taken it, has taken it away, nail, having nailed it to the cross, nailing it to the cross. Jesus becomes the moral ledger. And that moral ledger is standing, look at the passage, it says, standing against us, it is condemning us. And so Jesus takes it away. How does Jesus take it away? Having nailed it to the cross. Jesus is the certificate of debt. And that is the certificate of death. And Jesus takes that on for us. Someone has to pay the price of our debt. Jesus says, it's gonna be you or it's gonna be me. Jesus says, I will pay that debt. We all have to choose though. Someone's gonna have to pay for all of that red ink. And how can you be certain that his death was sufficient for that payment? Look at what he paid. <laughs> he gave his life and look at his method of death, that torture and even the crucifixion itself. It's a public display of all debts paid. It's to give us certainty that, you know, the that all the red ink has been vanquished. Now, God wants us to be certain about our certainty. And I love this. That's one little metaphor of this ledger system. But in contrast to the ledger system, God says this, he gives us another analogy to help us understand that that merit system is not to be used and it's been taken care of. Another analogy that God uses for salvation, our, cells, our soul's health in this life and its certainty in the next life is, is the idea of inheritance. So not only is the debt system done away with because the debt has been paid and cast away, those sorts of things, we also find out that salvation is like inheritance, the inheritance of the riches of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the idea of a last will and testament where, where we receive this from God. As a matter of fact, in a last will and testament, this analogy that's going to be used is for two purposes. One is to show us that God wants us to be like part of his family, it, like in, in, in involved in, he wants to be involved in our lives as, as a father loves his son or daughter. And then second, he wants us to know that we have our heirs to the riches of Jesus Christ. And because the inheritance, this, this theology of inheritance is, is so profound, it is also the, the most impactful, I guess, analogy or metaphor for salvation. Look what one Bible scholar says. In the Bible, the concept of a judge declaring us benefactors to the, promises, to the promise of an inheritance of Jesus' righteousness is the strongest emphasis of where we stand in our relationship with God. Inheritance is the strongest emphasis of where we stand in our relationship to God. Okay, what, what the scholar is saying, could you imagine 
this moment where you're called into God Almighty, the judge of the universe, into his courtroom. And he opens up the papers and he calls out your name and it says, according to this, you've been adopted into this family. That's point one. You've been adopted into this family. You are part of this group now. And wait, turns the page over and says, says here that you've inherited the lavish righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are no longer lost and homeless. You're one of us and you have exceeding wealth. Look what it says in Galatians, the idea of inheritance. And if you put your faith in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, family, heirs according to the promise. You're part of that. You're in that family now, but you're also inheriting righteousness, a perfect standing before God. In Ephesians, Paul says this, the Gentiles who, the Gentiles, that's you and non-Jewish people are called Gentiles. Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow partakers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Our faith in Christ makes us his children. Our faith in Christ makes us rich in righteousness. And, and, and I, I want to emphasize again, this, the point of this metaphor is to emphasize that he is in a familial relationship with us. In other words, he doesn't want to be our boss. He doesn't want to hear from your calculator or your accountant. He wants to talk to you as a child as often as possible so that he can say to you, I love you. I always will, no matter what. It's a relational dynamic here so that you'll live a life of peace and live a life of courage because you can be certain of these things. Resurrection Sunday, it changes so much. It changes the idea that we might have on our own heart or other world religions that are communicating to us that we ought to be on a ledger system. It changes that and takes away the red ink of indebtedness. And it changes to an idea of inheritance. It gets rid of, of, of the payment of debt. It, it, it kills the debt payment by crucifying that and gives us an inheritance of the righteousness of Christ. And the point I'm going back to again and again, it is so that we can live not in a life of uncertainty and in fear, but rather a life of assurance and a life of courage. So where's your faith in the health of your soul and its eternal fate? Is it in a ledger or is it in a will and testament? That's what Resurrection Sunday is. It's about where you're putting your faith in the health of your soul and the fate of your soul. Where is that? Wait, there's more. So that you and I will be certain about certainty and, and we'll be able to manage our fears as they rise up and we can quench them with, with courage. There's another metaphor that's used in the Bible to make sure that we know. It's the idea of, of salvation being a gift. And again, you look at the, in the context of it being a gift, it's opposed to it being a work or something that you earn. 
And, and even in, the, in that, it's like, what's the relationship like? God is saying, no, no, no. I want you to see salvation as a gift that I give to someone I love, not as a work as to someone that I've employed. You see, I, he doesn't want you to, he, do, he doesn't want to see yourself as a slave because he doesn't see you that way. He wants to see yourself as a child of his. And so just to make sure that you understand, because people get this mixed up when they're in the relationship with God, if we have a very nice car sitting out front and I say, look, uh, I'll give that to you if you work a thousand hours for me, then that car is not a gift. It's a wage. You earned it. It's, there's, no, there's no benefit, you know, really on your part. But if I said there's a car out front and it's the one you've always wanted and it, here's the keys and it's free, that's a gift. Gifts are free. That's the idea. Salvation is, is in the Bible is defined by this, that you receive by faith, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, that his righteousness is a gift, that you just receive that gift. It's, it's, and so in the Bible, uh, you, know, you need to know this. Grace, the word grace means gift. The word grace is like a Bible church word for the word gift, because I want you to see as we read these passages together, when we emphasize the word grace, it means it's, it's just a, it's not a business contract. If you do this, I'll give you this gift, because if you do this, that's not a gift anymore. It's a salary. And so the, this, the concept is this. I'm, I, God doesn't see you as an employee. He sees you as a child of someone. He sees you as somebody he loves. So, so it's just like it's here. Here's another metaphor. It's a gift towards a loved one, like a lover. I love you. I want to spend eternity with you. I'd like to give you this ring. Will you marry me? And the only action on your part is to just simply receive the gift. So look what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and how he's stuttering. Paul will be stuttering using gift and grace interchangeably so that we get it. It is by grace. It's by a gift that you've been saved. It's through faith in Jesus. It's not from yourselves. It's not works. It's a gift from God. Not by works that anyone should boast because it's not works. It can't be works. It's a gift. It's a free gift. Here's a, the next passage I want you to uh, look at with me. Is, it's interesting because it uses both the idea or metaphor of gift and inheritance, being an heir. I love uh, Titus 3, 7 says, it is because of his grace, because of this gift, that he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that it is certainty that we will inherit eternal life. Because it's a gift and we don't have to earn it, then this gift of righteousness, then we can have confidence because it's not up to us. It's up to his gift that he gave us. And how can we have assurance? Look at the gift. Look at the gift. Jesus Christ himself is, is our gift. So that it says in the passage, so that we can have confidence, so we can live without fear, so that we can live courageously. So Resurrection Sunday is this. It's a decision about where you put your faith, your hope, your trust. Is it going to be in a work schedule or is it going to be in a gift? Is it about a ledger or is it about a will and testament? That's what it's all about. And here's what I'd like us to all do. If this is something that's on your heart, if you have questions about, I'd like for you to text Jesus to the number that's on your screen. And here's the three ways that we'd like to contact you for three reasons that we'd love for you to contact us and we'll call you back, okay? One is, 
you're having a hard time understanding because this is a huge paradigm change in how you're viewing your relationship with God and you have questions about, really? Salvation is a gift through faith alone? Yeah, you, want, you have questions about that? Please text Jesus to that number. And then another one, because that's the second part of the sermon here, is certainty. I know a lot of people growing up in some, in, in some you know, Christian churches, they feel like they can't be sure of their salvation. They can't be certain of their inheritance. And so that's a big question that we want to help answer. So you just text Jesus to that number. And the third thing that we'd love to hear from you, if this happened, if this is the first time you've put your faith in Jesus as, as being you know, the, the person that gives you an inheritance that makes you his child, that, that gives you a gift. If this is the first time you're putting your faith as a means of salvation to live by and to have certainty to die by, we want to know that because we want to follow up and tell you more about the great news. So if you could do that, that'd be great. Let me just summarize. Our relationship with God is not a merit system. It's based on inheritance. It's not a wage system. It is based on receiving a gift. And because of that, we can have certainty and we can have assurance and we can live courageously and boldly without fear. The, the promises of God, these are very big promises and they're radical promises. That's why there was a resurrection because other people could promise these things and you'd say, oh, that's too good to be true. And it kind of is. And so in the fullness of time, in the wisdom of God, he'd say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put all these promises on the back of this miracle that's going to take place where Jesus says, look, if it's not true, then look, you'll know I won't be raised from the dead. But if I'm raised from the dead, here's what it means. And that's why the resurrection is so powerful. That's why all of history revolves around this. That's why it's the declarative, definitive statement in every man, woman, and child. It be, because the resurrection says this, that debt payment, it's paid in full. That inheritance, it's applied. That gift, it was granted. You just need to receive it. The last, some of the last words of Jesus are, it is finished. And that phrase is used in the, in, the Old, in the Greek New Testament times, sometimes in accounting. When you paid for something, it, they would write, it is paid in full. And paid in full is the same as it is finished. Resurrection Sunday in one sentence. Here it goes. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is righteous and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is righteous and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all of our unrighteousness. Today, choose today. Choose today the method of salvation and soul health that the Bible speaks about from cover to cover. And then live in courage and uncertainty. I'd like to play a video for you right now. And it is written in a way that it is a, it is a, a message of love from God. God is speaking in this video about our entire lives together. And it's a love letter. As you watch that, I'd like for you to just consider about the, the power and the depth of that video, but hang in there, come back. I have two questions I wanna ask everyone. And uh, if you get these questions right, it will radically change your life. So join me after the video. See you in four minutes.
you. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled. Colorful. Each one unique. And I created every one of them. I created everything. The universe. And you. I gave you your personality. I made you pure. Complex. And every day, I give you life. I love you. But something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. You sinned. You cut yourself off from me. And although you're still alive, you are slowly dying. So you looked for other things. To fill the void. But nothing works. It just kills you faster. And it separates us more and more. What are you searching for? destroyed, but to know me, so I became one of you, a fragile creation. I was tempted, but I never sinned. I came to save you. You have so many sins, and they have a cost. Someone has to die. You or me, so I took on your sin and traded in my life for yours. Follow me. That's a beautiful video. Power of the gospel. 
and what Jesus has done for us so that we might live. What I thought I'd do now is, you know, I was thinking six months ago when I was looking at the Easter sermon, I wanted to reenact what I do when I sit down with people and they've come to me and they're wondering about their relationship with God. And so six months ago, I had this in my mind to do this live and I I can't let it go. So I'm going to do it not so live. This is what I do when I talk to people about the gospel. And I'd like to just show you how answering these two questions can change your life. They're about, it's about how we can live without fear because we can live with certainty. So it would go like this. Listen, I understand that everything that I just shared about what the Bible says about salvation is kind of radical. It's not based on a ledger. It's based on inheritance. It's, it's, it's a gift, not a work. It's a, it's a beautiful thing about the nature of God to give us that. And so what I'd like to do is just show you how you can live in certainty without fear. There's a book in the Bible that's written by John. And John's one of the four guys that wrote a biography about Jesus. And he was the closest of all of the disciples to Jesus. He was the one whom Jesus loved. And John, towards the end of his life, there were people that were being persecuted unto death that were followers of Jesus Christ. And they were afraid. Uh, they were seeing that if they were found, they would be killed. It's a little bit like today where death was somewhat a little closer than normal and people were living in fear because they were uncertain. And so John writes a book and it's called First John. And he writes it so that you and I can have certainty and confidence about where we stand with God and where we'll spend eternity. And so it, it's, it's this letter, it's First John, and it's towards the end of your Bible. And, and I want you to mark and dog ear that page because it's written to you. And it's that passage that we just read, that single sentence that defines the gospel. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is righteous and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then just a couple chapters over in chapter five, it says this, and the witness is this, that the God who has given us eternal life, and this is his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. Those things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you might know you have eternal life. So here's question number one. Uh, If you were to die right now, what are the odds that you would go to heaven? A lot of people that I've talked to over the years, I'd say, oh, you know, I came in here. I didn't think I'd even go to heaven. And now I would say after what you've talked about, 60%, it's probably 60% chance that I'll go to heaven. I'll say, you know, that's great. Let's, let's read that first verse again that we looked at in, first, in, in the chapter one. Okay, it says, if we confess our sins, he is righteous and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See how it says all unrighteousness, everything is purified. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. And I'll say, yeah, you know, I appreciate your tenderness towards some of the decisions you've made and how much pain has cost other people. But while it sounds humble, it's actually a very proud statement to say, you don't know how bad I am or how, what bad things I've done because what the Bible says is, do you have any idea what the price Jesus paid? I mean, are, are you saying that the the death, the torturous, terrible death of Jesus Christ was not enough to pay your debt? I think you might've just said, 
that your sin is greater than, than God so loved the world he gave his only son. And they'll say, wow, that's okay. Sometimes they'll say, well, okay, but I can't forgive myself. And I'll say, you know what? I appreciate that I do because that means your heart is tender towards some of the decisions you made. It sounds like you're taking a spiritual inventory and you don't like what's coming up. I'll say, but listen, what you just said is not an expression of humility. It's another expression of pride because what you just said was, okay, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. In other words, you're saying you have a higher standard than God in the context of holiness. And I don't think you mean that your standard of holiness is greater than God's standard. No, I don't, I don't mean that, okay. I said, could it possibly, what, what you're trying to say is that you just can't believe it? It's just too good to be true? Yeah, okay. Well, let's, let's just read that verse again. It says, look, if, uh, if we confess our sins, he is righteous and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want you to see there, see how, see how I'm in a circle. You know, it, he is righteous and just to forgive us. It is the nature of God that obligates God to forgive us from all of our sins. He has to, because he's perfect. It is the perfect nature of God to purify us from all perfection, it could say. So what, what, are, what are your odds of going to heaven now? Oh, wow, you're right. That's like 90%. Okay, good, 90%. That's great. Hey, let's look at those passages in chapter five. Remember those? Here's verse 11 and 12. It says, and, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. Do you have a son? Okay, then you, what? Do you have the life? Yes, okay. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of God, in the son of God, in order that you may know you have eternal life. Know you have eternal life. So you said, what, 90%? What are your odds of going to heaven? Oh, Oh, wow. I was like 99%. Okay, good, man. Okay, great, 99%. Hey, let's look at that passage again <laughs> where it says, if we confess our sins, he is righteous and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And look at this other one that says, he who has a son has a life. He who does not have a son does not have a life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of the God in order that you might know, and I circle the word know, in order that you might know you have eternal life. In their Bibles, I will circle all, uh, he will cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness and you will know you have eternal life. Now, what are your odds? What do you think your odds are going to heaven? What's it say? What do you think? 100%? Yeah, it's 100%. Okay, you answered question one, right. So how do you know? That's question two. How do you know? I mean, when you came in here, you came in here not even thinking you're gonna to go to heaven. And then you went to 60% after I explained what the good news is. Then you went to what, 90%, then 99, now you're 100. I think it's pretty bold of you, maybe even arrogant to say that there's a 100% chance of you going to heaven. I mean, how do you know that? And the person will say, well, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not so, I don't, you know what? That's, a, I mean, how, that is bold. It is a little bit proud, 100% chance of going to heaven. I don't know, he says. And I say, well, look, let's, let's read these verses. Look what it says. He who has a son has a life. He who does not have a son does not have a life. 
Now, and these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know you have eternal life. Do you know you have eternal life? You said you did. You said there was a 100% chance of going to heaven. Yeah, I, I know. I said, well, then how? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, you're, you told me I did. I said, well, yeah, but I think the more you get to know me, the less you're going to trust me, especially with your soul. So let's read that verse again. Um, look how it says, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. These things I've written, uh, I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you might know you have eternal life. Do you know you have eternal life? Yes, I know I have eternal life. What are your odds of going to heaven if you died right now? It's 100%. How do you know that? Because it says so right there in the Bible. Uh-huh, there it is. There it is. Right there in the Bible. That's how you know. That's how you can be certain. That's how you can live in peace. That's how you can live without fear. That's how you can live with courage. And if you went to a church that kind of taught the Bible, certain churches would teach their little kids this song. I'm gonna teach you this song because it is a profoundly deep song that can change your whole world. It goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Okay, that sounded terrible. Let's all sing it right now in our living rooms together, okay? Ready? Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. And what does the Bible tell you? The Bible tells you that if you have the son, you have the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. If you confess your sins, he is righteous and just to forgive your sins and purify you of all unrighteousness. These things I've written to you who believe in the son of God, who believe in Jesus so that you might know you have eternal life. So go and live in courage, go and live in certainty, go live a life of assurance. And when you get to heaven, and some guys work in that front gate and says, why should I let you in here? You say, God promised. You say, Jesus provided. You say, Jesus said so in his Bible. Now, let me ask you something. What kind of God does that? What kind of God tells you how you can have a relationship with him and it's not based on works. It's not based on a ledger. It's, it's not based on, on merit or working. It is based on a gift. He provides the way and then, and then writes it down in multiple ways, in multiple venues. There's five different analogies, at least in the Bible from cover to cover through various stories about how God says it's a gift. The righteous shall live by faith in the gift that Jesus Christ is. What kind of God does that? Wow, that's a great God. That's a loving God that does that. That's what I want us to leave with today on Resurrection Sunday. And listen, what do you do with all that power, with all of that certainty, with all of that courage, now that you've released this, these feelings of fear, and now you can realize I'm a I'm a child of God. My identity is found in him. What do you do with that? You use that because now the spirit of God lives within you and you use that to become like Christ in all of life. 
The Spirit of God makes you become like Christ in all of life. And so that, that gives you like the authority to maybe face your, an addiction that you might have, an addiction to perfection, an addiction to control, and a, and a, a need for you know, feeling like other people should have pity on you, an addiction to worry, a compulsive pride that you can't get rid of. Now you have the courage of a new identity and a new power. You can, you can join us at Celebrate Recovery. We would expect during this season that people are coming to terms with what they used to think was kind of a glitch is now something that overcomes them, chemically speaking or attribute wise. Become like Christ in all of life. Maybe you, you should consider joining us at Celebrate Recovery. And you can go on the website and find out about that. You can do it certainly during these days, especially during these days, and find some fellow traveler to live one day at a time. You know where you can take this courage, this newfound courage, this newfound you know, power of knowing who you are and where you'll spend eternity. You, you can take it into forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, receiving forgiveness in the relationships that you are quarantined with maybe. You know where you can take this courage, this freedom? You can take it to make your marriage what God meant it to be. I think because of our quarantine, I think marriages are getting strained. And we have a ministry that I feel like has been ramping up for years to get ready for this very day so that we don't survive, but we thrive in this time. And thriving means going to... uh, uh, re-engage. It's called re-engage. Go to the website. You can join a new group and then maybe even get in a closed group during the quarantine. And you guys can work out like what it looks like. Our men's Bible studies, our women's Bible studies, those are available too. And the purpose of these ministries that we have for you is so that you don't survive this experience. You thrive in it. And resurrection, it gives us the power to thrive, not survive. Because now we have the spirit of God. Now we have the courage of God. Now we have the power of God. Now we have the freedom from God. Now we live without fear, no fear, no uncertainty. We're gonna be different. We're gonna live different. We're gonna die a different death, if that be the case. Guys, would you join me in prayer and celebrate this very unusual and uniquely powerful Resurrection Sunday? 2020. Let's pray. Lord, what a message from you in a time like this. We are so grateful that Jesus came for this very purpose to help us abandon and maybe re-abandon the ledger system of keeping track of our soul's health, that we would abandon that that we would, that it stands over us and condemns us and that Jesus would take that having nailed it to the cross. He became our certificate of debt, our certificate of death. I ask that you would help us visualize that so that we can be free of that ledger system and we would receive just as an inheritance, this bringing and coming into your family and, and this inheritance of Christ's righteousness so that we would see ourselves as rich children of yours, that you want a relationship with us, that, we, that you want us to talk to you all the time about everything. And we would take you up on that offer as our father, as our loving father. God, I'd ask that you would give us this courage and this sense of safety, that we wouldn't be compulsively afraid or worrisome, that we would turn that over to you. We would seek help if necessary, and that we would live lives that thrive. 
I'd, I, God, I, I thank you for putting us in a situation where we have to stop and realize like who we are, who we've become and how that happened. And now, Lord, lead us out. Lead us out through the truth and the love that you've given us as you've written down in that Holy Bible that Jesus loves us and this we know because the Bible tells us so. Now, we live courageously for you in the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.